Turn with me to John 17 this morning. John 17, we'll pick up. We're in the midst of the Lord's Prayer here, which we call Jesus' High Priestly Prayer, John 17. And I want to start in verse 6 this morning. We'll read down to verse 10. John 17, verses 6 through 10. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your awesome and majestic Word. Thank You for the the clarity with which it speaks to us. I pray this morning You would give us an even deeper appreciation of what You have done in saving a people for Your own possession. I pray it would cause us to rejoice in You, to glory in You, to realize that it's not about us, but about You. I pray You would transform perspectives today. I pray there would be open hearts and open minds to Your truth and that Your truth would settle in deep within our hearts and souls, and that it would be refreshing to us and an encouragement to us. I pray that we would receive Your truth, whatever it is, and say, yes, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, I was speaking last week after service with a couple, a little bit about Reformed theology because of what happened and came up in John 17, verses 1-5. through 5. In prayer here, Jesus asks, if you look up above, Father, the hour has come, glorify Your Son, this is verse 1, that the Son may glorify You, even as You gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom You have given Him, He may give eternal life. That phrase, to all whom You have given Him. Jesus here praying to His Father, saying, To all those whom you have given to me, I have come to give those eternal life. We spent some time discussing that phrase together. Obviously, behind that phrase is a word that we refer to as election. Jesus is asking the Father to bring His earthly mission to conclusion such that He accomplishes the purpose for which He was sent. To provide eternal life to those whom the Father had given to the Son. Jesus had came to save those given to Him by the Father. And then we know from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28, when all things are ultimately put in subjection underneath Jesus, He will reciprocally give all of that back to the Father as this wonderful, perfect, reciprocal gift of love. The Father giving to His Son a gift of a redeemed people. The Son coming to die and rise again, thus redeeming them. The Holy Spirit then drawing those individuals, that Holy Spirit changing hearts in those individuals such that they would see the glory of Jesus, that they would come to Him and hear His words and receive His words and obey His words and love Him. All of this ultimately rebounding back to God the Father's glory as everything is put in subjection to Him. What effects such great good for men ultimately is aimed at displaying and declaring the glory of God. Displaying the riches of God's mercy and grace. You see, God will be praised throughout all eternity for this indescribable, incredible gift. At first, it may be unsettling to some to hear that we as people are not of first importance to God. That's unsettling to us sometimes, right? If we're honest about it, where we originate with our sinful hearts and sinful preoccupations, we care about self more than anyone else and certainly more than God. And so to hear the Bible clearly say everything is about Him and His glory is an affront to our pride and our arrogance. We have a hard time receiving this, yet I'm so thankful that God has made it so clear. And this is just one passage in which it's done. 
But I think we need this medicine. We need this medicine to be administered to us day after day and week after week. God is great. God is good. God is preeminent. God is overall. He is the Creator. We are the creatures. He is the potter. And we are the clay. I've heard it said that the doctrines of grace are something that should be treated as seasoning. Just as any meal lacks something without some seasoning, so biblical doctrine should always be seasoned with grace. Uh, perhaps that instruction comes even from a you know, loose uh, application of Colossians 4.6, which says, let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt. So you'll know how to respond to each person. It's also been warned, and I think it's, it's right to say this, that to concentrate exclusively on the doctrines of grace may do a disservice to many contexts and meanings to give perhaps people a mouthful of salt. Yet, there are times in the life of the church, especially in churches that are committed to expositional verse-by-verse preaching, that a passage will provide a particular understanding of a doctrine, and therefore further discussion seems necessary and helpful to the congregation. This morning is one of those. I want to handle the topic of election today. This subject has a very rich history of discussion and dialogue and debate. And sadly, it also has a history of divide. But what is really, what's really at the heart of this issue? What's it about? Why is there even a discussion about it? What is our church's position on this matter? And how did we come to that position? What's the historical flow of this? Where did this come from? How did we come to this understanding from God's Word? Also, by God's grace and His providence, we've seen quite a few visitors as of late, and we've had several families joining the church. And sometimes I I realize that I can sometimes make assumptions about what all of us believe and what all of us know. Sometimes because if you've been with people for many, many years, you just assume, oh yeah, we talked about that back then. (laughs) We went through Ephesians 1. We should know what the Bible has to say about that. But the truth is, many of you probably were not here when I was preaching through the book of Ephesians or these sorts of things. So we can't just make assumptions about what we understand. So for some of you, this might be a new doctrine to contemplate and consider. Consider what does the Bible have to say about it. For others of us, maybe you're very familiar with this discussion already. And if that's your case, then I just encourage you with the words that Paul had for the church at Philippi in Philippians 3.1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me at all. And it's a safeguard to you. Perhaps it would be fitting to provide further explanation this morning as to what we're trying to communicate with the title Reformed Baptist. What does it mean to be a Reformed Baptist? Most people today understand the Baptist part of that, right? I mean, most general people understand, what do you mean by Baptist? Well, oh yeah, you believe in believer's baptism. You know, historically, Baptists don't baptize babies. We baptize believers. And so there's usually a baptistry in a Baptist church um, because we really believe that this is an outward symbol of an inward reality, something that has to be followed in obedience after someone has come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Most people understand that element of our name. But what causes a little more head-scratching is what is a Reformed Baptist? The term Reformed has emotive connotations today, which sometimes maybe makes this title a little bit difficult for people to swallow. Thoughts of Reformed schools come to mind and primitive ways of life or something of this nature. The word itself is defined by dictionaries as amended by the removal of faults. So changing something to get rid of the faults or the abuses. Another way it's defined is improving something in conduct or morals or changing for the better. (laughs) To change for the better. But in what way are we trying to say that our church is amended by the removal of faults? In what way are we trying to say that our church has been improved for the better? Well, the term reformed reminds us of a very significant historical event. That event which we remember as the Protestant Reformation. For those of us familiar with church history, those events transpired back in the years leading up to 1517, which is a really important date in the Protestant Reformation. The the year that Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg in which he was denouncing the horrible atrocities that were going on within the Roman Catholic Church. But Martin Luther wasn't the only significant player in that time in history for the Reformation. You had what were called pre-reformers, men like John Wycliffe and John Huss. 
You also had Martin Luther and people like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin. Now, these men were truly engaged in a fight for the gospel, for the truth of the unadulterated gospel. Because regretfully, over many years of church traditions and ceremonies, the Roman Catholic Church departed from the simplicity and sincerity of the gospel. The reason why the Reformers were saying that they were engaged in a Reformation is they were trying to reform the church. They're saying there's abuses that have come into the church that are not part of what the church is to be. And we need to address that head on. We need to correct this head on. Their desire was to change and reform the church itself. It was not to split away from the church. The idea was, okay, here's the church as we know it at the moment, and it's departed from biblical doctrine. We need to bring it back, call it back to the Scriptures. Let's analyze all these papal decretals and all these councils and and all of the things that have been going on, all the ceremonies in question, is this what the Bible actually teaches? It was a call back to biblical fidelity. A desire that the church would be reformed and remade and restored back to a, a former glory. A desire to return the church back to a moment, back to the earlier church days. The days of the, Jesus and the apostles. As is the case throughout history, even when leadership goes Awry, God is still saving His people. Sometimes it's in spite of what's going on in organized religion that God draws someone to Christ, grants them repentance, grants them faith, and saves them. Martin Luther is perhaps the most well-known of them. Uh, The Reformers, for his courageous stand upon God's Word alone against all man-made doctrines and traditions, Certainly, as with all of these people in history, I and mean, this is to be a disclaimer any time, it's not as if I agree with everything that Martin Luther taught. But he had something critically right. He had something that is so right that it is right for us to remember what God did through Martin Luther. Even under counsel and under examination, Martin Luther said he could not renounce his teachings. He would not renounce his teachings that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, as the Scriptures alone being the final authority for everything we believe and how we behave. Those five only statements became now remembered by us as the solas of the Reformation. Sola from the Latin word for only, sola, the five solas referring to these five crucial doctrines, which was a recapturing of the genuine Gospel. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, as the Scriptures alone declare it. And the Scriptures would be the final authority for everything that was believed and how everything was done. Now, Martin Luther doesn't really evoke the Catholic Church's, Roman Catholic Church's ire until he nails those 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg because one of the things that he's expressly condemning was the sale of indulgences throughout Europe. The Roman Catholic Church had people going around selling indulgences. By that they meant, if you come in and view these relics, and relics were like supposed, you know, bones from apostles or nails that nailed Jesus to the cross and weird stuff like this. And, you know, Martin Luther said, you know, if you could view all the nails that ever crucified Jesus, you could, you could shoe every horse in Saxony. He said, you know, they just, oh, this is a nail that was there. Oh, this is a nail, and this is a bone, and this was a stole. And he said, if you came in and viewed these things, and you went through the little thing, you paid your money, then you could have time and purgatory removed for yourself or for loved ones who are presently in pain in this place called purgatory, which, by the way, is not a biblical doctrine itself. So this, invis- this imaginary place that we have created, we're going to give you time off from there if you give us money pretty much what it boils down to. And Martin Luther was seeing the, the poor people being taken advantage of. Can you imagine attending masses and it's, everything's done in Latin? You can't even understand what's being said. You're being told by these church leaders you have to go through these motions in order to get your loved ones who are presently burning in purgatory out of that place. And Luther can stand it no longer. He, he nails those theses. And as soon as he does, there's a there's a movement that develops and a recognition that this is all false. And then Rome gets really upset because now their pockets are being affected by what's going on. Many other reformers would follow. And not all these men would agree on every doctrine. However, they were agreed 
about what must be reformed in the church's understanding of the Gospel. For to lose the Gospel is to lose the church's message to a lost and dying world. It's to lose the very means by which someone becomes a part of the church. You're not a Christian because you were born into a Christian home. You're not a Christian because you walked an aisle. You're not a Christian because you got dunked in water. You're not a Christian for any of those reasons. There must be a genuine heart change that happens. There must be a true looking to Jesus. There must be genuine repentance of sin, genuine faith and trust and relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, while the Reformers might disagree on some things, there was something that united them all. And it was a place for no compromise at all. And that's why when Rome reacted by condemning the Reformers as heretics, they said, then we will leave Rome. And by God's providence, there were people in political power that saved these men's lives. Otherwise, they would have been killed as many pre-Reformers were killed before these men came. Men like John Wycliffe and Huss. On the Gospel, there could be no compromise. This was what the change for the better is. This is what the Reformation was about. It was a correction and removal of abuses and falsehood. It was a return to the heart of the Bible's message and a commitment to teach this message, the Bible, as it was originally intended to be taught and understood. The reason why it's so important that we remember church history is because we ourselves could wander away from the truth. The reason why the Scriptures hold such a central place in our church is because they safeguard us from error. We need this continual correction We ourselves could go the same way. I mentioned to our school teachers every year at the beginning at our in-service that remember Yale, Princeton, and Harvard. Because all three of those schools started as theological institutions, seminaries, to raise up pastors. And you look at those three schools today, and it's not a shred of that. They're trying to cover up anything that might talk about God's glory on their buildings and all of the rest. The term Reformed Baptist also is utilized today to identify our stance on the nature of grace. You see, one of those solas was by grace alone. What is grace? That's the question. What does it mean to be saved by grace alone? What does the Bible tell us about grace? What is grace? Why do we need grace? To whom does God give grace? Why did it t- what did it take for God to grant grace? On what basis do we receive grace? Once we've received grace, can we ever lose grace? You see it? There's a lot of questions about what is grace? How does it interact with us? Because since grace is at the heart of the Gospel, we need to define that. We need to defend that. The Reformation, which began in earnest in the 1500s, would be further clarified in the 1600s. And questions revolving around what does it mean to be saved by grace alone came to the forefront These questions would be systematically answered at a Dutch synod, the Synod of Dort, which happened in 1618-1619. A group of pastors in that area gathered together because there was a man by the name of Jacobus Arminius who thought of himself as a true Calvinist, by the way. But he had begun teaching contrary to that a consensus Protestant position on the doctrine of election. He didn't deny the terms predestination or election. By the way, if anyone denies the terms, the terms are in the Bible itself. So no one can just deny the terms. So he wasn't denying the terms. They're in the Bible. But he taught a different understanding of the terms. The debate was a matter of what predestination or what election to salvation was based upon. For Arminius, God's predestination of people to salvation is founded upon God's foreknowledge of what people would do. So, he elected them based upon what he knew they would do in their life when they would later exercise faith in Christ. So, the idea is God elects those whom he knows will believe in Jesus. By the way, this is believed by many today. God elects. The word election and predestination just means God knows. It just means foreknowledge. God knows what people will do with Jesus. And based upon his knowledge of what they'll do, he'll then select them for himself which makes who the prime mover in this? The person, right? 
the person, based upon his knowledge of what the person does, he then elects them because he knows what they're going to do regarding Jesus. Now, Arminius had some others who were sympathetic to his views, and so they wrote a document in 1610 called the Remonstrance, in which they outlined five points. This is how they go. I'm just going to list them quickly. Number one, when God predestined, he did it before the foundation of the world. But those whom he predestined to be saved will be saved by their belief in Christ, and God elects them based upon his foreknowledge of who would believe. It's a restatement of what I just said earlier. The second point that they made, Jesus died for every person, but only believers receive the benefits. So Jesus died for every single individual, but only believers receive the benefits of that. Three, humans can do nothing good on their own account. Now that was put in there, by the way, because they're also being accused of being Pelagians. And Pelagius was a guy who fought with Augustine back in like 400 AD. And his belief was that man could, by his own will, choose to do what is good without any assistance from God. And so they wanted to make sure that, no, we're not Pelagians. <laughs> we're different from that. So they said that humans cannot do anything good on their own account. Fourth, they said grace is resistible. So if God chooses, chooses to extend grace towards an individual, that individual can stop that grace from being extended, can push it away, can do their own thing, even as God is trying to save them. And five, whether Christians persevere to the end or not is unclear. They said we don't have a position on it. We don't know whether or not once someone is saved, if they persevere to the end. They could or they could not. We're unclear about what the scriptures say about it. So that was the official five statements that were made by the remonstrance. By the way, that's what they were remembered as. They wrote this remonstrance. And so then the remonstrance were those people who agreed with those five statements. Now, the Synod of Dort, when they got together, they affirmed five doctrines in response. And the five doctrines that they affirmed in response, we refer to as Sometimes Calvinism. Otherwise, it's also referred to as the doctrines of grace, which I like better. Because there's so much misunderstanding regarding John Calvin, which is really, really sad. By the way, this happens 50 years after John Calvin's death. So, it's not as if John Calvin was there at the conference or, you know, signed the document or like, I'm the first one to sign this thing. He's not even there. But... It was in keeping with what John Calvin taught, as well as Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli. It was in keeping with what the Reformers were teaching. But Calvin, because he is so famously known for writing the Institutes of the Christian Religion, pretty much the first you know, Protestant systematic theology, he's kind of connected with this. So they responded to each of those. The first point was, not total depravity, but divine election. And we, we order those, by the way, because we like the word tulip to remember these things. But the first point was on divine election. And what they said is this. God's predestination is not based upon foreknowledge of what the elect would do, but is based only upon the inscrutable will of God. Election is something within God's will that we don't understand. But it is based on Him, not based on us. Two. Christ laid down His life for the elect. He died for those whom the Father desired to give to Him. So when He died, He died for a particular people, for those whom the Father has given to Him. And you'll see how this phrase comes up in our passage here a few more times. Third and fourth kind of come together in the Synod of Dort. Human's nature, uh, the corruption of human nature due to the fall affects every part of man. Every single part of us is, is affected by the fall. That's where we get our tea told depravity from. And therefore, nothing less than irresistible grace is required to save a man. Remember, they said before you could resist God's grace. Here in this particular, talking about the work of salvation, what is required is an irresistible grace. A grace that overcomes our objections. A grace that overcomes our hardness. A grace that causes the dead to live. An irresistible grace. And the fifth thing was perseverance of the saints. That all those whom the Father has elected, all those whom Jesus died for, all those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated, persevere to the end. If He selected them from eternity past, before the foundation of the world, then what would ever stop Him from holding on to His own? These five points were reordered by the acronym TULIP, Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, Limited Atonement, Irresistible Grace, and Perseverance of the Saints. But the key that I want you to remember is that the reason why these doctrines are near and dear to our hearts is because they defend what we mean by being saved by grace alone. I just want to say this. 
I really truly believe that there are a host of people that disagree with me and other people who are of a Reformed perspective on this who are genuinely Christians. And I say this in humility. I don't say this as if I am the know-it-all. I myself was once there. The Lord corrected me in my understanding of this through His Word. But what I want to say is this. I believe that there's great inconsistencies in the way in which they view these things. The song Amazing Grace, which we'll sing at the end. I do believe that's right, Christian. That song which Christians the world over sing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, God saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. You realize that they're singing Reformed theology. <laughs> I was blind, you gave me eyes to see. I was lost and you found me. Not me finding you. Not me opening my own eyes. God must take the initiative in all of this. If we've received unmerited favor from God, grace, that means that salvation is not granted to me for some work that I have done. It's not given to me for some character quality that I have grown up. It's not given to me for some spirituality that I have cultivated within my soul. Salvation is not conditioned on me. It is freely given by God. It is a gift. A true and utterly giftful gift. <laughs> well, you can say... We read this morning, John 1, verse 13, those who received Jesus were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So following the work of the Synod of Dort, the English wouldn't leave it alone, so the English wrote some doctrinal statements and were thankful for those. The Westminster Confession was written in 1646. It's the most well-known Protestant confession of faith and it expands upon what the Synod of Dort said. Bernard takes that and just Blows it up even further. Talks about all, takes all those concepts, they're all present in the Westminster, and then there's further things discussed. Following that, you'd also see the first London Baptist Confession. As a matter of fact, those were both going like simultaneously pretty much, the same years. But then you'd have some Congregationalist churches that came upon, wrote the Savoy Declaration in 1658. And then in 1689, the second London Baptist Confession of Faith was written. This becomes important to us as a church family because it's that document that is at the basis of our church longer confession. The longer confession to which the elders and pastors of this church submit to and agree with and believe to be scriptural with some edits that we have made and notated in footnotes and all the rest, and you can see all those online or in packets that you've gotten, is based upon that heritage. The Synod of Dort, the Westminster Confession, the First London Baptist Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which holds the biggest place in that. So I bring all of this up this morning. Well, I'm glad you asked. What Jesus prayed for in John 17, 2, becomes all the more pronounced as he shifts from praying for himself in verses 1 through 5 to praying for his disciples starting in verse 6. And it is the smoothest of transitions because when Jesus prays that the Father glorify Him, that rebounds to the disciples' good as well. You see, Jesus' glory and His followers' good are linked together. But certainly whenever the issue of predestination and election arises, we must certainly affirm not only God's sovereignty, but man's responsibility. The Bible teaches both. Let me make sure very, very clear on this. The Bible teaches that man is responsible and the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. And I believe that this text, as the rest of Scripture, upholds those truths simultaneously. It is not one or the other. It is both. Man is called to listen. Man is called to receive. Man is called to believe. Man is held responsible for what he does. And he's held responsible for what he does in reference to Jesus. Simultaneously, the redemption of man is the result of God the Father's election, God the Son's saving, redemptive work, and God the Holy Spirit's regenerating, giving new life. In one sense, Jesus is God's gift to man, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, John 3.16. But it's also true that a called-out humanity is God's gift to His Son. Jesus saying here, I came to redeem those whom the Father has given to me. So in one sense, Jesus is a gift to believers. And in another sense, believers are a gift to the Son. So I want to consider both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty for just a few moments here in John 17, 6-10. First of all, the call to believe. 
man's response to Christ. Is a Christian identifiable? How do you recognize a Christian? What are his or her distinguishing characteristics? If we were attempting to identify an animal, and I told you that this animal lives on land, you wouldn't guess a shark. If I then told you that the animal is a quadruped, you wouldn't guess a centipede. If I then told you that he has a short coat with dark blotches, you wouldn't guess a polar bear. If I then told you that this animal is the tallest living animal, you wouldn't tell me the Apatosaurus. you tell me what? Ah, it's a giraffe. Excellent. You passed the test. Similarly, a Christian can be identified by what he keeps, by what he knows, and by what he believes. What he keeps, what he knows, and what he believes. Just because we say that a person is saved by God's grace through faith alone, not by works so that no one can boast, this does not mean that a Christian does nothing. Quite the contrary. What impacted by God's grace is forever changed. Their life is changed. They've been given life. And that pours out every pore of their body. The disciples were changed once. They received the words that Jesus gave them as from the Father. They received Jesus' words. Two, they truly knew that Christ had come from the Father. They had knowledge of Jesus' nature. And three, they believed that the Father had sent Jesus. They believed in Jesus' mission. So, they believed God the Father's Word. They believed that God the Son was God's Son. And they believed that God the Son had been sent by God the Father to, to accomplish a great mission. So, let's talk about what a Christian keeps. Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Jesus said in his Sermon on the Mount that a Christian will be known by his or her fruits. And among the fruits that a Christian is known by is that a Christian keeps God's word. How does that seem? Well, a Christian considers God's word a treasure. A treasure to be joyfully received. A Christian studies God's Word so that conclusions drawn from it are accurate. A Christian memorizes God's Word to meditate upon it. A Christian dwells upon God's Word to ensure familiarity with it. A Christian is delighted to share God's Word with others. And a Christian delights himself in obeying what God has said. And a Christian safeguards God's Word from error and heresy and alteration, whether unwitting or purposeful. But if you have any familiarity with the Gospel accounts up to this point, and you think about Jesus' disciples, Jesus' statement here appears a little odd. Again, verse 6, I manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Are we talking about the same guys here, Jesus? Repeatedly, Jesus described the disciples as, you of little faith, Matthew 6.30, Matthew 8.26, Matthew 14.31, Matthew 16.8. The, the, the disciples would become concerned with daily needs and have little faith. They would become afraid of storms at sea, and Jesus would say, oh, you of little faith. They would demonstrate themselves to be spiritually dense. Where are we going to get this bread? Where's this love? What's the bread he's talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees. I'm not even talking about what you're thinking about. I just provided for you bread. It's like... These are the ones that Jesus is describing as keeping God's Word? All these disciples were on the brink of deserting Jesus. He's just said in this very context, you're all about to leave me. You're about to desert me in the hour in which I'm going to be arrested and crucified. And Peter is soon going to deny Jesus three times. The men that Jesus is talking about were filled with flaws and repeatedly demonstrated ignorance and misunderstanding and little faith. They didn't have long lists of spiritual accomplishments and achievements. Yet Jesus speaks of them as ones who have kept God's Word. And as you start to consider that conundrum, out of the mystery of that statement comes great hope for us. There is tremendous hope for us in these words. Wherever our Savior sees, note, you of little faith, but not you of no faith. You see, where our Savior sees genuine, true faith and trust in Himself, though it is weak and feeble, 
Jesus holds them. The disciples were weak. They were ignorant. They were often mis- they often misunderstood their Savior. And they would deny Him. And they would leave Him. But they would not leave Him finally, nor ultimately. And though their faith was weak, Jesus would never let them go. And since our Lord and Savior Jesus, being God, is immutable, He never changes, we too have hope. What was distinctive of these men compared to the rest of the world? Jesus says, I pray for these men, not those of the world, but these whom you've given me out of the world. Those are the ones I'm praying for here. So what's distinctive about these that have been called out of the world versus those who are still in the world? Well, a couple of things. What a Christian knows. What does a Christian know? Look at verse 6. I've manifested your name to those who you have given to me. When Jesus says your name, he means everything that that, that name brings with it. The personhood, the, the character, the nature of that person. Jesus is saying, I have effectually revealed your essential nature, God the Father, to them. Reminds us of John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The word there in Greek looks a lot like our English word exegete. He has exegeted Him. (laughs) Who has exegeted the Father? The Son. Jesus has. As a matter of fact, Jesus so perfectly exegeted the Father that He can tell His disciples, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. He is the Father's fullest revelation of Himself to mankind. He says, I've manifested your name to those you've given to me. Look at verse 7. Now they know that everything which you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them and they received them and have known truly that from you they came forth. What is he saying? This is true of all Christians. A Christian knows God's Word. When God's Word is delivered, they receive God's Word. Christians receive what God has said. And a Christian knows God's Son. They recognize, the disciples recognize Jesus as God's Son, whom God had sent. The disciples might not have understood that their Messiah had to die and rise again, or how everything in the Old Testament was pointing forward to this Jesus. They would soon come to realize all of that. But they might not understand all of that right now but they were deeply convinced that Jesus was sent by God and that everything that Jesus taught was from God the Father. And they listened to Him and they received His words and they obeyed and they believed. D.A. Carson says it this way, When other disciples judge that Jesus teaches too many hard things, see John 6, the twelve stay with Jesus. They say, You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. <laughs> Jesus says, are you going to leave me too? Like, Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. We know that you came from God. We might not understand it all. We might show our ignorance. We might be sticking our foots in our mouths quite often, right? But we know who you are and we trust you. It's a very weak, childlike faith, but they trust Jesus. They receive His words. They know He came from God the Father. So they remain with Him. A Christian knows God's Word. A Christian knows that God's Son, Jesus, was sent by God the Father. And a Christian believes. A Christian is one who believes that he's been sent by Him. Look at verse 8 again, the end of it. It came forth from you, and they believe that you sent Me. See, knowledge of Jesus, recognition that He came from God the Father and spoke God's Word, culminates in them trusting in Jesus' person. They can trust Jesus. They believe in Him. Christian is one who has a deep commitment to the mission which Jesus was on. A desire to see His kingdom come and His will be done. What beautiful, how beautiful it is to know that the faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. It's not the quantity of one's faith that is crucial. It is the one in whom someone trusts that is most important. It's not how much faith I have in Almighty God. It's that I have faith in Almighty God. And praise the Lord for that. Because we show ourselves to be bumbling idiots so often, don't we? No matter how sincere or how fervent or how committed someone might be to their faith, if it's anything or in anyone other than Jesus, it's misplaced. It's a faulty faith. It's a wrong faith. It's a... 
empty faith. But no matter how small the faith, the weakest faith placed in Jesus is powerful because Jesus is powerful and He's able to accomplish great things. Now those who receive, believe, and persevere in the truth prove that they're indeed Christians. Genuine Christianity is about a genuine heart transformation which shows itself then in authentic Christian living. But there's a change on the inside first and you can't reverse the order of those. Christianity is not get your life straight and come to Jesus. It's repent of your sin and come to Jesus. He'll change everything else. But the conversion that makes a rebellious hater of God into a sanctified worshiper of God, that's observable in a man's life. But its origin is in eternity past. The origin of that conversion is in eternity past. And the implications for that conversion go into eternity future. This brings us to point two. The call of election. God's gift to Christ. When it comes to salvation, the Bible is very clear. Whosoever wills may come. God desires all men to repent and be saved. God, uh, Jesus calls all who are weary and heavy laden to come unto Him. Whosoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I'm so thankful for those very clear calls to people to come to Jesus. Praise the Lord. Anyone who seeks forgiveness, anyone who believes in, craves, loves, and longs for Jesus will not be pushed out. No matter their social standing, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their language, no matter their age, no matter their occupation, no matter what their past is like, no matter how much sin has peppered their past. It does not matter. Anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful the Scripture is so clear in that appeal. But this is the further question. What brings a man from unbelief to belief? The unbeliever is called to believe. The sinner is called to repent. But what causes a man... Just change all around. What causes that sort of heart change? What changes his nature? How does one who is dead in sins come to life? How is a hardened heart made soft? How are the spiritually blind given eyes to see? What turns a man from a God-hater into a God-lover? What brings a man to the end of himself? What causes him to see the sinfulness of his own sin, to despise his sin, to repent of his sin, and to look to Jesus and to embrace Him with his whole heart? What does that? That's the question. Yes, anyone who calls is saved. But what changes the heart? Who's able to do this? The Scriptures alone provide the answer. Man's salvation was planned in eternity past. Man's salvation was planned in eternity past. Because salvation is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. Again, verse 2, Even as you gave Him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given Him, He may give eternal life. Who is He giving eternal life to? Not everyone. To all those whom the Father has given to Him. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men which you gave to me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. Verse 9, again the phrase, the ones whom you have given to me. Repeated here several times, isn't it? You see, out of the world, there are a great many who fail to recognize who Jesus is. And don't see Him as the revealer of the Father. There are a great many who rejected Him as the Messiah. But a chosen few received Him and believed in Him. Those whom God saves are also referred to as those whom God has chosen. Or those whom God has elected. He used the word elect or chosen. And it's not an isolated term. I remember the first time that I had heard a full, kind of full-on message on the doctrine of election. It was by John MacArthur, and the first time I heard it, I'm like, man, I had no idea the Bible talks about this so much. I went up to college, talked to my buddies and roommates about it. They said, oh, you're going kind of crazy. Just, you know, watch out. So, I, okay, I listened to the sermon a second time. I'm like, no, the Bible teaches this. It's unavoidable. Listen, I'm just going to give you a quick smattering of how many times the Bible describes believers as those chosen by God, those elect by God. Here, quick, quick, we'll just run through these. Matthew 22:14. For many are called, but few are 
chosen. John 13, 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. Romans 9, 11 to 13. Though the twins were not yet born, had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to His choice would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Ephesians 1, 4. Just as He chose us, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we'd be holy and blameless before Him in love. Colossians 3.12 So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion. 2 Timothy 2.10 The reason why Paul can persevere amidst all the persecution, he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Titus 1.1 Paul, a bondservant of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. 1 Peter 2.9 But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. It's not just like this, doesn't it? Jesus is saying, they were yours and you gave them to me. I have to read at least one article from the Canons of Dort. Remember, their very first head, or their first doctrine, there's five things, but the first one was on election. This comes from Article 7. And listen to this, just describe what the Bible says is behind the scenes when someone is saved. Doctrine of election. Listen to what it says. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, He has, out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of His own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault from the primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ, whom He from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor more deserving than the others, but with them involved in one common misery. So he's saying there's nothing better about these people. They're not selected because there's something better than the rest. They're part of the same common misery. They're in the same situation as they were. God has decreed to give to Christ to be saved by Him and effectually to call and draw them to His communion by His Word and Spirit, to bestow upon them true faith, justification, and sanctification, and having powerfully preserved them in the fellowship of His Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of His mercy for the praise of the riches of His glorious grace, as it is written, for He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. And elsewhere, and those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. Amen. You get to the end of that and you go, so you're saying it's all about God. Yes, it's all about Him. From beginning to end. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginner and ender. He's everything in between. It's all about Him. It's all ultimately so a father could give a love gift to his son. His son would die for and then ultimately give it back to the father. We're in the midst of this inter-Trinitarian love gift. It's all about Him. Yeah. Just to make it clear in the Council of Dort, the Synod of Dort, they said this further. The election was not founded upon foreseen faith and the obedience of faith, holiness, or any other good quality or disposition in man. Saying, he didn't choose on the basis of what he knew we would do. That choosing on the basis of foreseen faith in us or foreseen goodness in us. He says, but men are chosen to faith and to obedience of faith. So he says, they're chosen not from it, but to it. <laughs> They're chosen to faith. They're chosen to obedience. Therefore, election is the fountain of every saving good from which proceed faith, holiness, and other gifts of salvation, and finally, eternal life itself and its fruits. We get verses 9 and 10. Now Jesus makes a request from, from... This is a request that comes from God the Son to God the Father. And the basis of this is that He's just established that these are those who are yours whom you gave to me. Verse 9. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I love this phrase, not for those who are in the world. You see, Christians have been called out of this world. They've been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. 
Jesus here is praying specifically for those. He says, I'm not praying for the rest of the world. I'm not praying for the world here. I'm praying for those whom you have given to me. He's interceding for his own. Now, this is not to say, please make sure I say this. This is not to say that God does not love the entire world. I believe that God does have a love for everyone in the whole world. God shows love to everyone. And we call that common grace. It's the word we use in theology, but we say common grace. His grace is extended in a common sense to everyone who lives on this planet. If you have life in your lungs, if you're here with a heart that beats, you are a recipient of God's common grace. If you have clothes on your back this morning, you are a recipient of God's common grace. If the rain falls on your grass in your yard, you're a recipient of common grace. For His rain falls on the just and unjust alike. And if you're here today and you're hearing the call of the Gospel, you're a recipient of God's common grace. For the call of the Gospel goes out to all. Yet God has a special love for those whom He is redeeming. When Jesus died on the cross, His offering was sufficient for all mankind. And the Gospel is offered to everyone freely, but His work is only effective for those who believe. Those very ones that were given to Him by the Father. And it's those whom He prays for, because it's those that He died for, and it's those who He always intercedes for. Hebrews 7, 25, Therefore Jesus is also able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. What we're seeing here is just a snapshot of what Jesus is always doing, praying for His own, interceding for His own. And isn't it wonderful? We can go straight to Him. You don't go through a pastor or a Sunday school teacher or some other relative or a pope or any of that junk. You go right to Jesus. He's the head of the church. And He's interceding on His church's behalf. And then Jesus provides us yet again this huge Christological claim. Who can claim this? Do you see it? Verse 10. All things that are mine are yours. Okay, I mean, so far, so good. Uh, all of us should say that. All that I have is yours, Father. All I have is yours. Now, we all say that, but a lot of times we show with our actions we don't behave like that, do we? It's all yours, Lord, but not these things. You know? But it, all that I have is yours. So, we should all be able to say that. None of us can say it perfectly. Jesus could say it perfectly. All that I have is yours. He said nothing but what the Father told him. He did nothing the Father unless the Father told him to. He can say, all that I have is yours. But the next phrase, who can say this? And all that is yours is mine. Can any of us pray that prayer? All that is yours is mine. You see, Jesus here claims yet another thing that's distinctive to Him as God. He's not only fully man, but fully God. This is like when Jesus declares the paralytic sins forgiven. Every he goes, what's he doing? Only God can forgive sins. Exactly. That's what Jesus is doing. I'm God. I can forgive sins. And here he says, all that's yours is mine. Why? Because Jesus is God. Jesus makes this appeal in prayer to the Father on behalf of those who have always been the Father's, who are a special gift from the Father to the Son. He knows that His Father cares about this prayer. He knows that His Father is actively involved in this. He knows His Father's love for these because these are the very ones which He has given as a love gift to His Son. He says, I pray for these, the ones whom You've given Me out of the world. And then the end of verse 10, and I have been glorified in them. You see, Jesus derives glory from the salvation of His disciples as men and women are rescued from the domain of darkness and are forgiven of their sins and they're enabled to do works for God's glory by God's grace, this all rebounds to His glory. It's a display of His glory and power. As Hendrickson noted, he said, you know, if Paul can say that the Philippians are his joy and his crown, and he can say that the Thessalonians are glory and our joy then certainly, if Paul can say that for the fruit that he saw in those, those congregations, how much more can Jesus say that of the church? You are my glory, Jesus says. You're a display of the riches of my mercy and glory and power. Let me wrap this up. Man is responsible for his belief and behavior. What a man does in reference to Christ 
has eternal ramifications and implications. The Bible commands men everywhere to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus Christ, the one and only Savior. But what brings a man from unbelief to belief? What leads a man to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Christ? The Bible is very clear. A miracle is required. A man has to be born again, John 3. God must give a sinful man the gift of repentance. God must grant him faith. The action required puts this outside of the natural man's ability. It was not left up to us. Because if it was, no one would be saved. We don't have it in us to renounce our sin by an act of our own willpower and follow Jesus. We don't love God as we ought. We don't choose as we ought. We don't act as we ought. Our lives are filled with both sins of commission and omission. All of this highlights our hopelessness unless God intervenes. And praise be to Him that He is not absent. He's been redeeming a people for His own possession. And He's had this plan in store from eternity past. He knew we couldn't save ourselves, so He accomplished what we could not. He sent His Son to die in the place of sinners. Jesus laid down His life from those whom the Father had granted to Him. And by all means, He won't lose a single one of them. Because they're God and the Father's gift to Him. He's never going to lose any of them. And they're the Father's in the first place. The Father's never going to lose any of them. We realize that the redemption has always been much bigger than us, dear friends. We're not the center of the universe. Everything does not revolve around us. This is one of those crucial matters that causes us so much trouble when we discuss the matter of election. We have a tendency to think that if we are everything rather than God is everything. So when then men cry out that it is unfair that God should choose some to save while leaving others to condemnation, they fail to recognize that this has nothing to do with fairness. For if everything was about fairness, if all this life was about fairness, then we would all go to hell. But thank God that He not only wanted to display His fairness, or we could also say it this way, His justice, He not only wanted to put that on display, but He also freely chose to display the riches of His mercy and grace by sending His Son to die for redeemed people. Anyone who is saved must realize that we deserved hell, but we received heaven and eternal life and restored relationship with God. We didn't get what we deserved. And we got what we got was utterly undeserved. I close with a quote from Richard Baxter. What an astonishing thought it will be in heaven to think of the immeasurable difference between what we deserve and what we receive. Between the state of what we should have been in and the state that we will be in. So then, let deserved be written on the door to hell but on the door to heaven, the free gift. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your mighty and awesome Word. And the recognition this morning as we spent a little time considering the history of this doctrine, I thank You for the long line of godly men that You have provided for us to learn from. Lord, that's all Your grace operative in their hearts to save them and then to gift them with abilities to understand and rightly interpret Your Word. I pray in our congregation that while we speak of these glorious doctrines and we speak of the doctrines of grace, Lord, we would always do so with graciousness in our hearts. I pray it would be our excitement would be for, for Your glory but that that excitement would be properly tempered such that we don't come across argumentative or mean-spirited. It is a desire that we would worship You aright and give You the glory that You alone are due. For salvation is Yours from beginning to end. And the truth of the matter is, every time I contemplate the doctrine of election and predestination, I, I get the end of it. And I, the one perplexing question I can never answer is, Why me? Why would you save me? I am just like the rest of them. I'm just a sinner through and through. I don't deserve any of your love or grace or mercy, and yet you have bestowed such treasures on me. 
Lord, everyone who has been a recipient of this must admit that this is not something we deserve, but a free gift. And may it make us all the more passionate in sharing the good news of that free gift with others. We don't know who the elect are. It's not our place. It's in your eternal counsels. You've given us a commission. You've told us to go. And because we know you're saving a people for your own possession, we know there will be success attended with this work. Lord, this morning we not only pray for our own hearts and souls and anyone who's in this room who does not know you, that you would grant them repentance and faith, cause that miraculous regeneration to happen right now. But we pray for people all over the world and for missionaries who are bringing your glorious gospel to people who have never heard of Jesus. Lord, may you work, and through that work, may you receive the glory that you are due. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.